Well, good morning, church. Man, what an incredible time of worship as we just declared the majesty and the glory of our Lord. I'm so excited about today as we're continuing our series, Overcoming Spiritual Vertigo. Now, we started this series last week, and we defined vertigo as this. It's when something or someone is stationary, but yet everything around them is spinning. Maybe you've experienced that before. And so we talk about that in the context of spiritual vertigo. Here's what that means. It means that as we try to live our lives, there's things that, that come into our life. Sometimes we have no control over, sometimes we have complete control over, but they come into our lives and ultimately it takes us and knocks us off balance or makes us feel like our life is spinning out of control. And so last week we talked about from Hebrews 12, how do we overcome that vertigo? How do we overcome those spiritual things that come into our lives that weight us down and the sin that entangles us? What do we do with those things? And we found from the writer of Hebrews, there's several things that we need to do to overcome spiritual vertigo. One thing is there's some things in our lives that we need to lay aside. But ultimately what he tells us is we need to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Now, as we come on the heels of last week, I think the appropriate question for us to ask is this. It's a question that maybe we don't ask enough. It's a question I think we ought to ask every week when a message is over, and it's this question. What's at stake if I do nothing? What's at stake if I continue to allow spiritual vertigo into my life? What's at stake if the weighty things of life, if the sinful things that's in my life, what's at stake if I don't deal with those things and lay those aside? What's at stake if I don't put my eyes on Jesus? What's at stake if I do nothing? And I really feel like the answer to that question is something that I have personally seen in the life of my son, Daniel. In fact, just so you know this, just for full disclosure, a couple weeks ago when I was putting the final touches on this message, I called Daniel and said, Daniel, here's a passage I'm going to be sharing. Here's what I'm going to be talking about. If it's okay with you, son, I would love to share a piece of your story because it's your story to tell. It's not my story. Are you okay with that? And here's literally what he said to me. He said, Dad, if my story will help somebody else out, please share it. So here's part of Daniel's story. There was about a three and a half year in Daniel's life. He's 20 years old now. He's in the army. He's about to be deployed, in fact, in just a couple of days. And so there's a season in Daniel's life. There's three and a half years between the time he was about mid-13 all the way up to 17 that he experienced unbelievable amount of spiritual vertigo. Some things that had come into his life that he had no control over that knocked him off balance and caused life and spiritually for things to spin out of control. In fact, those things that came into his life were deaths. In the period of three and a half years, there were six deaths that Daniel had to begin to deal with. Six deaths of people that he loved, he cared for, and he invested his life in. And those things brought a lot of weight and spiritual vertigo to his life. It began with my aunt, my aunt Jean. In fact, Daniel and my Aunt Jean, like with many of my aunts, they just connected. I mean, they had a kindred spirit. They had the same weird kind of sense of humor. They laughed. And when Daniel would see her, he would just go up and crawl up in her lap, and he would love on her. From the time he was a kid, even through a teenager, he would go and he would love and he would hug on her. And then one day we got the terrible news that she had cancer. And we walked a journey with her. We prayed for her. We visited her. We were with her a lot of the times. But ultimately, she lost that battle to cancer. And then after that, just a few months later, as he began to process that, a few months later, then my uncle had cancer, colon cancer. 
And he went the same journey with him. He and Daniel were buddies, and he always made, he wasn't as close to, to my uncle as he was my aunt, but Daniel was always someone that he made feel welcome, and he loved, and he joked around with Daniel. And if you, if you know my son Daniel, he's got a heart the size of Texas. And so he would joke around with him, and Daniel just loved my Uncle Bill. And he too passed away. And then shortly after that, he was probably a sophomore in high school when he was in this class. I don't even know if it was a math class or English class, but there was this young man in this class that, that he kind of felt like was being ostracized from everybody else. And, and all three of my boys, I'm so proud of them because when they see people like that, they tend to gravitate to those people to want to invest in them and love on them. And so Daniel did that with this young man and he began to talk to him. And he would even come home talking to me about dad, about this friend that he had that nobody talks to, but he's trying to spend time with and he tries to do lunch with and all those things. Well, this friend of his apparently felt life was so unbearable that eventually he, too, took his life. And then after that, it was even more intense because then Daniel's small group leader, a 19, 20-year-old young man who grew up in our church and was a part of our student ministry, had gone on, and now he'd come back and he was leading one of our small groups. In fact, he was leading Daniel's small group, a group of freshmen and sophomore boys. And he was on his way to a class for physical therapy when he was in a head-on collision and he didn't make it. Four deaths and a little over two years. And then a death that really sent Daniel to a tailspin was the death of my dad. My dad was, a, was kind of Daniel's buddy. They were golfing buddies. My dad would always teach Daniel how to play golf. He would take him in the backyard, and he would tell me to stay inside. He's like, because you're too tough on Daniel. Let me do it. And I'm thinking, okay, who is this guy? Because when he was my dad, he was sure tough on me. But when you get older, things change. So he and Daniel would go outside, and they would play, hit golf balls, and they would mess around. And my dad would teach Daniel, and Daniel would just be mesmerized with my dad. And then my dad developed dementia, Alzheimer's. And eventually he saw my dad dwindle down to the day that he passed away. And then after that, he was a junior in high school when Daniel experienced the sixth death. And that was one of his best friends, a young lady named Camille, who's one of his best friends, all through high school. And she was killed in an accident riding around some of her friends on a Friday night. Now, I say that to say this. In, in a matter of three and a half years, six deaths that began to, to happen in Daniel's life. And I know what some of you are thinking, going, hey, death is a part of life. And you're right, it is. Uh, you're absolutely right. But I can remember, I was like 18 years old before I experienced the first death of someone that I loved and I cared about. It was a friend of mine in high school. In three and a half years, Daniel experienced six of those. And if you know anything about teenagers, that's huge for them. And so for Daniel, he experienced spiritual vertigo would maybe be an understatement to say he experienced that. And the way that Daniel coped with it is he internalized it. And as he internalized those things, now yes, he cried, and yes, yes, he expressed emotion at each one of those deaths, but ultimately he internalized it. And with each death, he would have bits of explosion, explosions in his behavior, explosions in his attitude, and eventually after all those deaths, I'll never forget this, Daniel literally got to the place after Camille passed away, after the sixth person where he was like, Dad, I'm not even sure I believe in this God anymore. I'm not even sure faith is a real thing. I'm not sure there's a God who loves me and cares about me. In fact, when we would talk about the Lord and talk about things and how you can lean on the Lord, he didn't want to talk about it. He didn't want to have anything to do with that because he had exploded. He'd internalized, and he didn't want anything to do with God. And it led him down a path of despair and depression. See, these weighty things that had come into Daniel's life didn't rock his faith they shattered his faith. Now you say, Doug, this is a really depressing way to start a message. Well, I want to say this on the flip side. Today, God has brought Daniel through that. 
I am so excited, the young man that he's being. And he's like all of us guys that love the Lord. I mean, we're still struggling. We're still trying to deal with sin in our lives. But God has brought him through that. And God has brought him through that really in large part since we've moved to Florida through people like Elijah Barnes who poured into him. Parker Murphy, who was a friend of his. Tim Diggs, who's the college pastor at, at Cross Life. I mean, different people God has put into his life that he's seen people that love the Lord, that have been through difficulties, and God has brought them through. And that's brought Daniel through that. So that's a praise to the Lord for that. But the reason I tell you Daniel's story is for this. I really believe with all of my heart, if we allow the weighty things of life to continue to spiritually knock us off our game, to continue to spiritually spin us out of control, ultimately that can lead us to a place where it will shatter our faith. So today, here's what I want to do. I want to look at a guy in scripture who had it rough in many, many ways. In fact, to say that he had it rough is definitely an understatement. But I don't only want us to look at the life and the character of this person. I want us to look at the unbelievable grief that he experienced. And then ultimately, I want us to look at how he responded. The response we get out of this guy is extraordinary. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to the book that you all know and are familiar with. It's the book of Job. The book of Job. And I want us to look at chapter 1. And there's really three things I want us to pull from this passage. And the first one is I want us to look at Job's life and his character. Look with me in verse 1 through 5. It says this. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. His sons used to go and hold feasts in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And then the days of the feast had run their course. Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning, and he offered burnt offerings according to the number of all of them. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did this continually. Now here's what we learned from the life and the character of Job. First and foremost, we learned that Job was a blameless and an upright man man. The scripture says he was blameless and upright. That doesn't mean he was perfect. Job, like many of us, had struggles and difficulties. But what it does mean is this, is that Job was someone who feared the Lord. Job was someone who honored and revered Lord himself. He honored and loved Yahweh. He loved the Lord. He was a man filled full of integrity. He was a man filled full of character in fact, Job, the Bible says that Job was a guy who lived a righteous life and he was willing to turn from evil. Job was blameless and upright. He was a man who loved the Lord. But he also, what we learn here, was a man that was blessed by the Lord. He had seven sons, three daughters, and thousands of animals, thousands of animals and servants on top of that. And you say, well, Doug, you know, you know, well, you think that, is that what it means to be blessed? Well, it doesn't matter, I mean, exactly when you look at this passage, I mean, it doesn't really matter that he had seven sons and three. I mean, what the passage is trying to get at is look at the totality of how God had blessed him. I mean, he was blessed with kids. He was blessed with animals. He was blessed with all the things the world had to offer. In fact, to the point where the Bible says that he was the greatest in the East, and I really think if you took that statement and you really kind of looked at it deeply, you'd find out this, that he was not only greatest in how he loved and feared the Lord, but he was also greatest in his wealth. He had more wealth, more stuff than anybody else in the world. 
And then one more thing we learn from the passage is this, in this first five verses, is that he lived to honor the Lord. It says that when his sons and his daughters would have a party and a feast, that Job would literally, after the party was over with, he was so driven by making sure that he was right with the Lord and his kids were right with the Lord, that after they had thrown a party and a feast, he was so concerned that they had sinned against God that he would go make offerings on their behalf because he wanted his kids to be in right relationship with the Lord. I mean, this is who Job was. He was blameless, upright, feared the Lord, full of integrity, turning from evil, blessed by God, and he was working to, and living to honor the Lord in everything that he did. And it's because of who he was that we see a conversation begin to happen. We won't read it, but in verses 6 through 12, a conversation happens between the Lord and Satan himself. Where Satan is going to and fro on the earth looking for who he could go after. And God literally offers up Job. He says, what about Job? He's blameless. He's upright. He's turning from evil. What about him? And Satan tells the Lord, the only reason he honors you, Lord, the only reason he worships you, Lord, is because you put this hedge of blessing around him. If you let me take that away from him, he will curse you. And so the Lord says, okay, fine. You do whatever you want to to Job, but you can't take his life. And that leads us to the second thing I want to see, and that's Job's unexpected grief. Look with me in verse 13 as we read about the grief that Job experiences. Verse 13 says this, Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job, saying, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was speaking, there came another said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep, and the servants consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While yet they were speaking, there came another said that Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of a sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And yet while he was still speaking, there came another who said, Your sons and your daughters... They were eating and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Now, there is no way, there's absolutely no way that we can get an adequate picture of what Job's going through. But here's what I want you to get out of this. The moment he gets unbelievable news, news that was unexpected, news that would cause great grief in his heart, as soon as he's hearing that news, somebody else is coming. He heard first about the ox, and then he heard about the sheep, and then he heard about the camels, and now he's heard about his kids. And one bad report after the next bad report after the next bad report. See, when I look at Daniel's life, there was a three and a half year period where he was having a process. It felt like we were in a season of grief and mourning, and about the time we would come out of it, another one happened. But see, Job didn't have time to process. It was one bad report after the next. In fact, it says, while the person was still speaking, another servant came. Now, I want you to look and think with me about what Job lost. First of all, it says he lost his ox and his donkey. Then they came and they took them, as well as the servants that managed those. Now, think about it. What is the value of an ox and a donkey to Job? Well, they are the powerhouse to working the ground, aren't they? It's the oxen and donkey that would have been utilized to plow the fields. And so for Job, he lost that capability to work the fields. And if he lost the capability to work the fields, that meant he lost the capability to provide for his family. Because if there's no crops, there's no food. 
And so the loss of an ox, all the ox and the donkey was catastrophic to Job. But if that wasn't bad enough, it says, then he goes on and talks about the sheep. The fire fell from heaven and all the sheep were gone and all the servants were dead. Well, think about sheep. What was the value of sheep to Job? Well, first of all, when you shear sheep, what do you get out of that? You get their wool. So for, for Job and his family, during the cold days that they would have experienced, that wool would have provided warmth for them. It's gone. But you know what also sheep provided for them? Food. See, the crops brought the vegetables in, but the sheep also provided the meat that they would eat, and all of that is now what? It's gone. But can I tell you the worst part about the sheep being gone? Is that it would have impeded his worship. Because one thing we know from the Old Testament is that, that oftentimes they would use unblemished sheep or a lamb, and they would offer it as a sacrifice to the Lord. So now all of that's gone. The, 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 the idea of having sheep to, to create warmth or to have food or even to be able to worship the way you want to worship, all that has been impacted. And if that's bad and not bad enough, next it says the camels were taken and the servants were killed. You say, well, Doug, what value does a camel have to Job? Well, the camels provided transportation. They provided leisure transportation. They provided transportation and commerce and they provided transportation and warfare. That's how camels were used. And when Job had that gone from him and taken from him, there's no longer a way for him to move about. There's no longer a way for him to engage in war or commerce with anybody else. Now, I want you to think about this with me for a moment. Think about what Job has lost. He can't work the fields. He can't provide crops for his family. There's no more uh, capability of warmth. The meat source is gone with the sheep. His worship has been impeded. Now his mode of transportation is absolutely, it's gone. But if that's not bad enough, last of all, what did Job lose? He lost his kids, right? While they were still speaking, another one came up and said that the four corners of the house, the wind struck and it fell and it killed all 10 of his kids, seven sons and three daughters, Job lost his lineage too. He lost the very kids that he loved, cared for, and nurtured. Gone. Now here's what I want you to think about for a moment. Job, outside of his wife, lost everything that day. And it wasn't over a course of years. It was over a course of moments. He lost everything. In fact, I would go as far as to say that it was probably the darkest day in Job's life. And I guess the question I think about for me is, okay, if I'd experienced what Job experienced, how would I have responded to that? How would I have responded to all the stuff that happened? Well, for some of us, if we ask that question, some of us would be honest enough to say that we would be unhinged by what we saw. That we would become unhinged and we would be filled with so much anger and frustration and despair. We would become unhinged. We'd be angry toward the, the messengers. We'd be angry toward God. And we'd say, God, why did you do this to me? God, I love you. I'm blameless. I've served you. I've turned from evil. I worshiped you. And you did this to me, God. I am so angry with you. That's how many of us respond. We would be unhinged in anger. For some others, you'd say, no, no, no. I would be unraveled and despair, and depression. It would literally just unravel my life, and I would just want to ball up and just be depressed. Ultimately, here's what many of us would be honest. If we were honest, we would say this, that if we experienced what Job experienced, ultimately, it would probably shatter our faith, right? It would shatter our faith. 
And maybe you're watching and you've experienced that. And you would say, Doug, that's where I'm at this morning. My faith hasn't been rocked. It's been shattered. Things in my life have happened. And it's unhinged me. Or it's unraveled me. But ultimately, it shattered my faith. Now, I want to I close the message out by looking at how Job responded. And I know if you're, if you're a church person and you've been in church, you already know how he responded. But I want you to think about the magnitude of what's going on. I want you to think about the magnitude of what's happened to Job, but let's look how Job responded. Look with me in verse 20 through 22. It says this. Then, after hearing all this, Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell on the ground and what? And he worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And it says this, and all this, Job did not sin or charge God with the wrong. Now, how did Job respond? Well, let me tell you how he responded. First of all, it says this, that he rose up and he tore his robe. Now, the tearing of a robe was a picture of sorrow. The robe would have been something that would have gone, it was an outer garment that would have covered his ephod, which would have been an inner garment, and it would have covered him up, it would have gone from almost his neck all the way down to his ankles. And he literally, when he heard all that was going on, Job stood to his feet and he tore his robe, expressing the sorrow that was deep within him. And then the Bible says after that, then what did he do? He shaved his head. So Doug, what in the world does shaving your head have to do with anything? Well, shaving your head was, a, was almost the same idea of, of sackcloth and ashes. It was a picture of mourning. So he's filled with sorrow, and he's mourning, and then look what he did next. Listen, because most of us, in the midst of our sorrow, in the midst of our mourning, that's where we become unhinged, right? That's where we get angry, or that's where we become unraveled. But that's not what Job did. The Bible says that in the moment that he, he, he tore his robe, sorrow, he shaved his head, mourning. Guess what he did next? It said he fell to the ground, which is a picture of humility. In the middle of the sorrow, in the middle of the mourning, he just fell to his knees. Now, what is that really, that humility a picture of? It's a picture of him saying, Lord, I'm hurting. Lord, I am mourning my losses. But I know that you're in control. I know that you're on your throne. I know that with everything that's going on, you are still faithful. You are still holy. You are still just. And you are still trustworthy. See, instead of Job raising his fists and cursing God, he fell on his knees, fell to the ground, and he humbled himself. Now listen, when I read that, that's so not how Doug responds. I get unhinged. Some of you get unraveled. But that's not how Job responded. Job, in the midst of his sorrow, in the midst of his mourning, fell on his knees and humbled himself before the Lord. And as a result of that, it says this, and he worshiped. Now think about that. In the middle of the grief, in the middle of sorrow, in the middle of his mourning, he's just lost everything, and he gets before the Lord, and he worships. He worships through the pain. He worships through the tears. He worships through the anguish, and he says, I came into this world with nothing. I'm going to go out with nothing. 
It's the Lord who gives and the Lord who takes away. In other words, it's the Lord's prerogative what I have and it's the Lord's prerogative to take it away from me. But ultimately, at the end of the day, where I find myself on the mountaintop or I find myself in the valley, where I find myself with much or I find myself with nothing, here's the declaration of Job's heart. Blessed be the name of the Lord, that he has given everything. And no matter where I find myself, there's only one response that should come out of me, and it's the response of worship. Worshiping through the sorrow. Worshiping through the pain. And Job declares his allegiance and his loyalty to the Lord in that moment. That's beautiful. See, in Job, now notice this. In Job, we don't see a faith that is shattered. We see a faith that is unshakable. Did you hear that? When you look at the story of Job, we don't see a faith that is shattered. We see a faith that's unshakable. Well, Doug, how was Job's faith so unshakable? Let me tell you why. Because where was his eyes during this turmoil? Where was his eyes during this time of suffering? Where was his eyes during this loss? Was it on the circumstances? No. Was he sitting there pondering how he lost everything? Absolutely not. Where was the eyes and the focus of Job? It was on who? The Lord, he fell to the ground, humbled himself, and he worshiped. See, the reason Job's faith was unshakable is because he had his eyes, not on the circumstances, but on the Lord. Now, this passage reminds us why it's so important for us and the danger of not dealing with the spiritual vertigo that's in our lives. There's a danger when we don't deal with the spiritual vertigo in our life. Do you think if Job had not looked to the Lord that he could have become unhinged? Absolutely. Do you think if Job had not looked to the Lord, he could have become unraveled? Absolutely. If you think if Job had not looked to the Lord, his faith could have been shattered? Absolutely. There is a danger when we don't deal with the spiritual vertigo that is raging in our life, and that danger is that we will go to a place where it will shatter our faith. But if we want to have faith like Job, faith that is unshakable, listen to me. First, we need to put our eyes on the Lord. Second, we might need to fall to the ground and humble ourselves before the Lord, saying, Lord, all this come my way, I know you're in control. Lord, with all this come my way, I know you're on your throne. Lord, with all this come my way, I know that you're still holy, you're still trustworthy. And you're still faithful. And then listen, here's the third thing we need to do. We need to worship. Now, I know many of you, because I watch every week, when the message is over and Doug says amen, you click off Facebook. You turn off YouTube. You kind of miss the last of the service. I'm going to ask you, don't do that. Because there's so many of you, you look at your life, you've had some weighty things happen to you. You've had some things that have impacted your life. And if you let those things linger, it's going to shatter your faith. But if you want to have faith that's unshakable like Job, you not only need to put your eyes on the Lord, humble yourselves for the Lord, but you need to worship, declare your allegiance and loyalty to him, declare that he is holy, that he's above all things, and that you're going to build your life on his love and his grace. So don't tune out right now. Tune in and get it, draw in a little bit deeper. Lean into where we're going and worship the Lord. And I think for believers, we have a choice to make this morning. That choice is simple. Do we want to let these things that cause spiritual vertigo, the weighty stuff, the sin that's in our life, do we want to let them go undealt with and lead us to a place where our faith is shattered? A place that we may not come back from? Or do we want to have faith that's unshakable? 
Faith like Job. Faith that can go through the deepest, darkest, most painful moments of your life and you can humble yourself before the Lord and you can still worship. You can still worship through the pain. You can worship through the loss. You know, I remember when my dad passed away. I was the only one in the room. And I got there before my family about three minutes and I was in my dad's ear and I'm just saying, Dad, I love you. It's okay to let go. I know you're about to see Jesus. And I remember my hand on my dad's chest in my ear to his mouth and my mouth to his ear. And I remember the last gasp he took. And then he passed. Was my heart filled full of grief? Man, I still struggle with that. Was I in mourning? Yeah, because my hero had died. But you know what? In that moment, God was so good to me because in that moment, the song that popped in my head was how great is our God. I'd heard it on the radio on the way to the, the nursing home, and that's a song that popped in my head. It was almost like in this moment of one of my greatest moments of sorrow, what came out of that? Worship. So as a believer, you've got a choice. A choice to let this stuff linger and shatter your faith our choice to humble yourself before the Lord and worship and let him empower you to have a faith that is unshakable. And then maybe there's some of you who are watching this morning and you don't have faith in Christ, but yet you've had a lot of weighty things come into your life and you look for something or someone to sustain you and to carry you through it. I'm just telling you, you're never going to survive those things spiritually. You're never going to survive those things emotionally without a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. He's the only one that can sustain you. He's the only one that can give you hope in your deepest sorrow. And maybe today you need to surrender your life to him, admitting that you're a sinner and say, Lord, I believe that you died on the cross for me, and today I give you my life. If you'll do that, he will come into your life, change your eternity, and he will sustain you no matter what you go through. We all have a choice to make this morning, but we'll be faithful to make it. Let's pray together. Father God, I love you. I thank you for the story of Job. I thank you for what we learn. I mean, this guy experienced more issues and troubles and grief and sorrow than maybe anybody outside of Jesus in the scriptures. But yet his response was to acknowledge his mourning, acknowledge his sorrow, but to humble himself before you and to worship. God, I think there's some people watching this morning that what they need more than anything else is to worship, to declare who you are, to declare that you are holy, you are righteous, you are trustworthy, and you are faithful. Even when sorrow overwhelms us, that we would just worship you. And then God, I pray for those who've never trusted you and they're looking for something to get them through the tough times. My prayer is they would look to Jesus. Lord, we all have a choice to make. Will we be faithful to make the one that's most honoring to you this morning? For it's in your precious and your holy son's name we pray. And everybody said amen.